Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm McGarry, and with me, as always, is our transfer guru, Mr. Duncan Castles, or I should say Dr. Duncan Castles. Today, we're going to bring you a lot of information on Manchester United. Leo Messi, obviously, uh, his contract situation with Barcelona, as well as the interest from Manchester City and PSG. And also, take a look at the title race. Now we are one third in to the season. Duncan, we're going to start with Manchester United, and it is the information at, that we've had at the transfer window that, amazingly, um, in this long saga of the appointment of a director of football, that a shortlist has actually been drafted. We understand there are five candidates on that list, and the list itself is being pushed by the Glazer uh, family rather than by Ed Woodward and Matt Judge, who is the, the chief uh, negotiator of player contracts and first squad development, and that they do uh, intend to make an appointment, as the podcast first reported three weeks ago in the new year with regards to organising and uh, looking towards the summer transfer window and spending money in a more strategic and purposeful way than perhaps you could argue they have done so far in the last two to three seasons and beyond, to be fair, Duncan. Um, Do you think it will finally happen? (laughs) As we discussed when we uh, brought uh, the news of that uh, list being drawn up and that plan being drawn up to... uh, put an appointment in place in the new year and have them ready for the summer, that's the big question. Will they actually complete um, this time? They have, and Ed Woodward's been uh, integral to this. They've briefed on multiple occasions that director of football was something they wanted to do. Going back as far far back as Jose Mourinho, there were um, discussions that a director of football was something that needed uh, to come in and Mourinho made his own proposal for that role. Um, a, a guy he's worked with in the past, Luis Campos, who I can tell our listeners, I my information is that he is on that five-man shortlist in this case, which is intriguing given that United did not interview him when uh, when Mourinho recommended him at, at that stage. Since then, he's gone on to embellish his reputation, obviously, with his uh, success at Lille. Um, another story we told you about in the podcast is that Campus has informed Leo that he would no longer be working for them um, at the end of the last transfer window. Um, his contract situation not completely resolved but and a discussion going on with uh, the owner of Leo as to um, how he can exit but his intention is to be free um, and from my understanding is that he would be interested in being interviewed by Manchester United. Um, a couple of other names that I'm aware are on the list. Uh, one is Paul Mitchell, um, formerly at Tottenham Hotspur and uh, the director of football at the Red Bull organisation um, for a period before he moved to Monaco um, earlier this year. Um, also, uh, in my information, someone that United have talked to in the past when assessing uh, candidates for this role um, someone who's highly regarded for his work at, at Leipzig Red Bull organisation in general and obviously at Tottenham before that and interestingly someone with a very close relationship with Maurizio Pochettino who I'm told he tried to convince 
to come and coach um, Monaco when Mitchell moved there um, to the, the, the French League. Third name that I'm told is on that list is Mark Overmars, who has done um, a very impressive job at Ajax, re-establishing them at the top of European football, um, being very close to taking them to the Champions League final uh, that, that Tottenham and Pochettino made and certainly were the better team over those um, two legs of the, the semi-final. And Overmars um, has pretty much made himself available um, two Premier League clubs. Um, he gave an interview last month where he talked about his spell at Ajax and the pride he had in the work that he and, and former Manchester United goalkeeper Edwin van der Sar had in, in the job they'd done there, but said uh, quite clearly that his time at Ajax was coming to an end, saying when I was appointed in this job at Ajax, I knew I only wanted to stay for three or four years maximum. I've been here for eight seasons now. Um, this job at Ajax is costing too much energy. The whole of the Netherlands is constantly on my back and has an opinion about us. Um, that tallies with information I have from people who know over Mars well that he is interested in the United job and would be interested in being interviewed. Um, and, you know, that's a, an intriguing proposition because of the, of the success he has had at Ajax. Although, and I'm sure Overmars will be well aware of this, the, the jobs are very different. Um, the, the, the core element in Ajax's rebuild has been to take advantage of their recruitment which has always been exceptional and their training of players, which again has been exceptional. Their ability to produce top level European players is probably as good at as, or if not better than any club in Europe. And then to sell them on at profit. Um, and they've used those profits to strengthen the team. Now that cannot be the model at Manchester United, even, um, if Edward Wood would like the idea of making uh, profits and always has like the idea of making profits and transfers. You are the end club at Manchester United. You're, you're buying. Okay. You could, you want to recruit early in the process if you can, but what you, when you buy, you expect the players to be there for the duration of their career. So it's a, it's a different focus. And I think what is going to be central, um, for at least those three candidates and I would assume for any other individuals on the shortlist in their conversations with United is the degree of control that they will be allowed as director of football. Um, I know talking to people who, who are interested in this job that their concern is that they can go to United, be used as kind of a front, uh, as a figurehead for the transfer business of the club, but not have the authority to make decisions, um, still be beholden to Ed Woodward uh, and potentially Matt Judge when it comes to negotiation of transfers and uh, approval to make those transfers and not um, have the degree of control that we need to turn around what are you know antiquated structures in many ways at Manchester United. They are not uh, first in class compared to other Premier League clubs and other European clubs in a lot of areas that a technical director would oversee. And we're not just talking about recruitment here, talking about communication to the players, looking after the players day to day, integrating their opinions and those of the manager and, and, and having a communication path back to the board, the, the medical department, um, the analytical department, all of those things need to be improved and a technical director coming in ideally would have the mandate to change those matters. There's a question mark over one, as you started this question, um, how serious are everyone in the executive level about bringing this technical director in? But more relevantly to the people who are being shortlisted, how much power do they actually get? How much authority do they get to change things, to use the massive resources that Manchester United have more effectively to improve results uh, and to succeed in the job? Each of those names is intriguing for different reasons. Duncan, obviously, Luis Campos has 
an incredible reputation and indeed a CV which will show that he has um, recruited players who have since been sold on uh, under his tutelage for almost 1 billion euros. Um, he has made incredible amounts of money for both Monaco and Lille uh, from players that he has identified and then recruited. Uh, I think Mark Overmars, as a former Arsenal player, would be very interesting. I mean, I don't know if uh, throwing pizza at Sir Alex Ferguson would be included in his interview, if you could hit him. Um, <laughs> but that might be part of, part of the problem for Mark Overmars. And also Paul Mitchell, who did a very good job um, at Tottenham before going to... Uh, effectively, he worked at RB Leipzig, but was in charge of the Red Bull group, uh, which included Salzburg as well. And both clubs uh, clearly um, have recruited very well. Um, Erling Haaland being the, one of the stars who um, and certainly has proven himself to be as well. Uh, I guess the, the question for each of those candidates, Duncan, is um, yes, what's my mandate? What's my power base in terms of actually making decisions and making a difference? But also... And this is something I've found with directors of football that I deal, have dealt with and deal with currently. Um, can I establish myself as being more powerful by doing good work? So uh, everyone in a position uh, like that, who's working under an executive board, uh, can actually prove their worth by recruiting well, by, as you said, um, assimilating themselves into the squad structure, medical data analysis, medical science, etc. Trying to make those little differences, those marginal gains that we talk about a lot in football um, by bringing their experience to that. And then saying, well, to the executive board, um, I've earned my mandate, I've earned my trust. So you now have to put your trust in me. Yeah, I think that's exactly the the key element for anyone who wants to take this job on and succeed. It, it's the dimension of the role, and you know there are there are red flags everywhere. I think <laughs> because they have delayed on this process on multiple occasions. They've been they've, they've allowed themselves to be linked with the idea of a director of football because it has sold well to the supporters, but not actually implemented. Woodward and the Glazers have retained control over the, the big transfer decisions, um, some of which have been made well, some of which have been made very poorly. Um, Harry Maguire, world record transfer fee for a defender, and now their current thinking is we need to buy another centre-back to uh, to sort out Harry Maguire's problems um, would be an example there and you, you saw it again against Sheffield United um, Maguire putting a goalkeeper making his, his uh, Premier League uh, first start for Manchester United under pressure and in a difficult situation in the early minutes of a game and, and putting them a goal behind um, something that, which I don't think was picked up on by certain broadcasters but other broadcasters highlighted that Maguire was mispositioned in the box you, you can see images of Nemanja Matic telling him uh, get yourself elsewhere in the area and pass it out, and pass it out to Alex Telles who was completely unmarked rather than put it back to the goalkeeper didn't cover himself in glory at the the set piece at the end of the game where Sheffield United threatened to get a draw from a match that they, they looked well be beaten in because of the quality of United's attack. Um, and also, United think they've got a good recruitment um, process in place. Uh, Woodward, when he talks about it, boasts about the amount of money that's been spent on it the amount of people they've put into uh, roles, the, the the degree of data analysis that goes on in making these signings. Um, he seems to think that they've done well in the transfer market and they already have plans in place for completing or getting close to completing the, the, the famous cultural reboot. So they are looking for that experienced right winger. They're looking for the centre back to sort out Maguire. Um, they're thinking about a right back, uh, as a, as a backup to Aaron Wan-Bissaka. 
and looking for a midfielder, something we'll, we'll talk about in the, the next section, so that they have quite strong ideas on what they do to complete the cultural reboot. They have indicated that they will make signings in January if the right player becomes available then, although they're cautious about the January market. Um, so if you, if you see that as a candidate for the role, you then have to ask yourself, well, have they already made the decisions on what they want to do with recruitment? Um, what am I coming in to do there? Um, and how much of a sake if I, if I don't like the player they've identified or the one or two players they've identified as primary candidates for those positions? Can I stop that from happening? Because those deals will be done in the summer, most likely. Um, that's when I will be in place. That's the, 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 the plan is to have hired someone in the new year to, um, be in place for the, the summer window, but we'll effectively be buying players that I haven't identified and I haven't driven the process on, um, with the idea that this is more or less completion of the project and we go on to Premier League and Champions League glory from there. My information, Duncan, is that there's a degree of scepticism um, around Manchester United um, and certainly amongst um, some of the senior uh, members, uh, let's just say, who aren't directly on the board but are still listened to um, when it comes to decisions, that perhaps um, the appointment of director of football is one which the... uh, Woodward and specifically, well, specifically Woodward, but Matt Judge as well, who currently has a big say in these things. They want someone who's malleable, someone who can, uh, who's not going to complain about their influence in decisions that will not be complaining uh, about decisions made above the DOF's head, etc., etc. Now, <sighs> You don't want to be in a position like that in terms of your job, when your job relies upon uh, you get, getting the right results in terms of the players that you recruit, etc., etc. Uh, so I would be sceptical about them getting anyone who is worth the salt, if you like, um, into the job. But there are always people who will quite happily take a position because it is Manchester United. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that when I have the conversations with people about this role and hear uh, the concerns and the question marks over what Manchester United actually want and the dangers of taking the role if they don't have proper power, it is one of the biggest clubs in football. It is going to be a very well paid job. Technical directors are not generally well paid in the, if you compare them to managers and footballers. Um, so <laughs> I have a kind of personal question myself, which is if the job is offered to one of these guys and they're not convinced that the criteria are quite correct, do they still just take it anyway? Because, um, because it's Manchester United and it's the it's the opportunity and and they have a belief that they can they can turn things around. I mean, we've seen managers take the job who, in retrospect, probably think they made a big mistake um, in doing so, and maybe that's an element of not doing their homework properly. Uh, and certainly, there has been an element with managers coming in where they've been shocked at the the inefficiency and disorganisation of the club once they got into it. But um, positions with status and positions with big wages tend to tempt people in football. We see lots of football professionals making mistakes on that basis. So maybe maybe they can get their man and um, from Woodward's perspective, not hand over the power that uh, he has been so reluctant to cede uh, in these last seven years he's been in charge as, as executive vice chairman. Well, you say that, but for example, I know for a, f- a, f- a fact that one former senior Manchester United player um, who was interviewed for this job, or certainly was spoken to uh, about the possibility of him taking it, um, has since decided, not since, but a-, a while ago, decided 
not only did he not want to take the job, uh, even though Manchester United is very much uh, his club, but has decided to pursue a career in coaching instead and at this moment is considering a move to a different club, even though he currently has an association with Manchester United. So I'm guessing that Woodward and uh, Judge are not making a very good job of persuading anyone that you know they're going to have the mandate that they require to at least take responsibility for their own position. And I do think that's going to be a problem. Uh, no matter how much the Glazers want to recruit a director of football and they want to, if you like, streamline and reorganise and strategize uh, the recruitment process, which has been scattergun and hasn't necessarily worked either, um, given the team's performances and indeed the lack of trophies, uh, but also the economics of what's happened in terms of transfer um, uh, transactions in the last three to four years, that, yeah, basically it is going to be difficult to persuade someone to take the job in the sense that if you can't persuade a inverted commas, man-united man to take the job, then what chance have they got of persuading someone else who is risking their reputation by going there and then failing because of someone else's uh, faults. I, I take your point, Ian, but also I would say when you're talking to a former footballer and, and for example, Patrice Evra was um, involved in these kind of discussions and there was, you know, he, he was one of the people Woodward was looking to to uh, to perhaps take on a director of football role. Someone like Patrice Evra has made a lot of money from the game and has a status in the game and also has the option to do what you're talking about, which is go down a coaching path rather than go down a technical director path. If it's Paul Mitchell or Lewis Campus, um, Paul Mitchell is going to make it, has made his career being a technical director and he's going to continue to make his career being a technical director. So the, the, and will not have made anything like as much money um, from his his professional football career and from his uh, technical director role. So that the calculation becomes different there. Luis Campos was a coach before he moved into scouting and recruitment, and his has proved that his success is in the uh, technical director role. So again, the calculation is different there, uh, which is why why I I pose that sort of question of. If they're offered the job, if this becomes a formal offer, which I don't think happened um, when United were talking to Evra and Co. in the in the the the, the previous uh, attempt or or sales pitch of, of we're going to bring a technical director in, um, which way do the guys jump? Is can someone be persuaded without absolute authority? I will take this on. I'll give it a go. Of course, without a hint of irony, Duncan, uh, you have some news, exclusive news on a Manchester United target, um, uh, a South American player um, who United are looking at along with another English club. Yeah, this is um, Moise Casado, um, who is Ecuador international, um, newly minted Ecuador international, made his debut for the country in October in a World Cup qualifying ties, now played four times for them and scored once. Um, he turned 19 uh, just last month. He's at Independiente in Ecuador. And um, my information is that both West Ham United and Manchester United have been in contact with Independiente to ask um, about the framework of a deal whether they are open to selling the player, how much it would cost, um, when they'd be able to do it. Um, they are open to selling. Uh, the price, I'm told, is going to be €6 million Euros plus 20% of any future sale. Um, you can see why Caicedo interests United. He kind of fits that cultural reboot model they've been talking about. Um, he fits with the kind of a couple of the deals uh, and that they made in the last window were bringing Facundo Palistri from Uruguay and Ahmad Giallo from Atalanta, where they're, they're taking teenagers who they're identifying as having 
a big potential in the game, uh, signing them early with the idea that they can feed them into the United team and turn them into um, first team uh, regulars for a decade or more. Um, Caicedo's a box-to-box aura holding midfielder, very dynamic in his play. Um, the kind of kind of player you see uh, running the entire game and covering the entire um, length of the pitch. A really good presser, so that would fit with the the model that Uli Gunnar Solskjaer is talking about wanting to implement in the team. Um, still quite raw in a lot of areas of it, of the game, but um, if it's six million euros and if he develops as uh, United and West Ham United think you he could do or will do um, could be a, a a good option to to get in the January window and I'm told they're discussing over a a January deal. Interestingly, Caicedo gave a television interview recently um, when he was asked about his his career aims and he said, "My challenge is one day to be in the elite of world football. I've proposed this to myself. My dream is to play in the big leagues." Asked which league, he said. The Premier League, Manchester United are my favourite club. And then identified N'Golo Kante and Paul Pogba as players that uh, he really likes watching and says he learns a lot from them every time he sees them. Very interesting to see if uh, that move happens in January or or indeed maybe next summer. But of course, the uh, possibility of new rules in terms of signing players um, because of the Brexit uh, which happens in January 1st, uh, could actually intercede on that one, which, of course, is a, another um, problematic uh, aspect for clubs in England with regards to um, recruiting players from anywhere, never mind outside, inside the European Union. Yeah, absolutely. The governing body endorsement that they would need to get has changed. Um, but obviously, in Caicedo's case, that his breakthrough into the Ecuador international team team, so at such an early age would help him in an appeal process that that GBA is very interesting actually because um, there was a there was a an amusing report in the Times a couple of weeks ago talking about how those governing body endorsements will apply to managers and uh, assistant coaches Mm -hmm. going forward and uh, there's there's a set uh group of leagues which are considered to be elite leagues and if you've coached in them you will be allowed a GBA but if you haven't then you'd have to appeal and um, intriguingly Solskjaer would not have qualified for a GBA on his uh, CV uh, because Norway isn't included in that uh, group of leagues that the the government and the FA and the Premier League have after a long period of, of, of quite fractious negotiations, it, uh, agreed as a stopgap um, way of deciding who will get visas uh, once Brexit is implemented. Would that also have got in the way of Big Sam going from Bolton to the black country? <laughs> <laughs> Not unless the black country gets a Northern Ireland-like exemption, which I, I, oh, okay. I don't well. believe they voted for in the... In that part of the world, did they? I just, I just had to mention them because obviously we we like to mention Super Size Sam and the, the firing up the Granada, and which is now parked in his manager's space outside of the Hawthorns. Um, good luck, Big Sam, uh, in terms of keeping them up. Uh, as you know, we're always behind you. One player who certainly will not need any kind of passport qualification or certification if he decides to move to England is Leo Messi, the um, saga, which is taking another twist uh, with regards to what happens to the Barcelona captain, um, will play out uh, in a month's time or less than a month's time now when the January transfer window opens. Well, obviously, there's a complication involved regarding the uh, presidential elections at the Camp Nou Club. However, it's our information that when Messi signed over um, a salary reduction, as all, most of the Barcelona players did, it w- it was included in that new newly um, stated contract that he had a get-out clause of around 50 million euros if he left in January. Obviously, his contract expires next summer when he can leave for free. 
But as we reported in the transfer window, uh, Manchester City are remain keen and would be open to paying a transfer fee in January for the player if they could secure his signature. Um, Paris Saint-Germain have also now declared an interest and we believe that they have spoken to his father and agent with regards to a potential move. But Duncan, Messi is one of these players who has flirted many times historically with different clubs and different moves etc but always remained uh, in Barcelona we saw that even in the summer when it seemed certain he would leave we, he made it public that he wanted to uh, but then again he decided that he didn't want to take the club to court and therefore he remained where he is do we think that he is serious enough about leaving Barcelona that he would accept one of these offers from uh, a nation-state-owned club uh, in terms of the money and also given that there seems to be a general view amongst most of the uh, presidential candidates that even if they wanted to retain Messi that his current salary is unsustainable in their economic uh, state as it stands. It's a fascinating situation this which I think has ramifications for the entire European football transfer market this summer because Messi as he pretty much has been for his entire career is in the position of power here. He has suitors trying to sign him. Again, common uh, circumstance for him. He's trying to secure the contract that suits him best and expects it to be an extremely affluent one. Certainly his father, Jorge Messi, does. The offer he had from Manchester City, Abu Dhabi City Football Group um, that he had accepted provisionally and as you say backed out of because it would require legal action against the club to move in the summer was for 700 million euros over five years um, with some of them spent in Manchester and some of them spent in New York City. His entire career has been a process of getting new improved contracts from Barcelona using clubs like Manchester City as leverage to obtain them. I think you ask a, a good question about whether he will eventually push his way out the exit door if the exit door is open to him by whoever wins the Barcelona election. And again, we have the current regime, the interim regime, talking on record saying that financially it would have been better to let the player go in the summer. I think most of the candidates, as you say, are aware that the financial state of Barcelona is awful and removing Messi from the salary um, book would help things significantly. There's a question over his sporting impact, a question over his uh, the degree of his importance in the team and in the club and whether that put, puts um, a handicap on the club and, and prevents them from uh, changing to a new era uh, and refreshing their play and, and and playing in the way that Barcelona expect supporters expect them to play. There's a lot of political elements there, but the Barcelona supporters want him to stay, and this is an election, so the presidential candidates have to, um, in their head, at least look as though they're trying to keep Messi. Um, but my understanding is some candidates would be prepared to let him go and let and happily allow Messi to take the uh, uh, the impact of that decision if he's seen to be the one who who forces the move. But take that situation with the election, take the pressure from the club to from the supporters to retain him. Then add in that you have Abu Dhabi and Qatar the two biggest funders in football, the two nation states who run football clubs with economic considerations at the back of their mind. The money is a tool to achieve the political um, and sporting goals and soft power goals that the ownership of these clubs is about. Both of them competing for your signature. Um, the two of them effectively in a proxy war uh, desperate to stop one another from getting the player and you being out of contract in the summer. 
Um, they both have plans that go beyond the club he would be moving to. So the idea of Paris Saint-Germain would be maybe two or three years at PSG and then potentially move to Qatar uh, around the time of the Qatar World Cup, uh, be an ambassador for Qatar in the way that, for example, Pep Guardiola and uh, Xavi have worked for that country in the past. Abu Dhabi, City Football Group, you move them to Manchester City, then you move them to another area of your organisation in the MLS. You pay him a massive amount of money, the richest contract ever in football by a significant margin. What you can say is the Messies are in a great position there from in terms of leverage, uh, in terms of negotiating power, in terms of having a range of options in European football to find a place where he can achieve his goal of winning another Champions League before he retires. Um, and where he decides to go, as I say, will shape what happens with other clubs because other clubs will have to respond. Barcelona will have to respond. Manchester City will have to respond if he goes to PSG. Um, PSG, as we have reported on this podcast for some time, have an issue with Kylian Mbappe. Uh, they are talking about trying to renew his contract, but Mbappe has signaled to the club that he wants to leave this summer um, with one year left in his contract to allow them to get a transfer fee, move elsewhere. Um, possibly Spain, possibly England, the two areas um, where he's expressed to friends the clubs he would like to go to and uh, and are interested in talking to Liverpool, Manchester United, Barcelona, Real Madrid. If you're going to lose Mbappe, what better way to replace him from a um, status perspective at the very least than bring Messi in and reunite him with Neymar in the, at the front of your attack? at PSG and that I'm told is one of the considerations driving this, uh, the discussions that have begun between the Messies and PSG over an alternative to the Manchester City move um, and an alternative way to stay in European football but still leave Barcelona. I think it's interesting Duncan that um, Messi always because of the way he plays because of the aura which surrounds him and achievements that he has uh, um, had in his career. He, he kind of has a halo about him. Um, he's kind of untouchable with regards to any kind of criticism or scandal, etc., etc. But behind all of that has been a very, very steely um, history and um, ability uh, and uh, determination to further his own wealth with regards to contract extensions. He's had four upgrades in the last six years at Barcelona to the point where he is the highest paid player in the world. And it's what's clear from even what the candidates in the presidential election, which is coming up in January at uh, Barcelona, is that that club cannot any longer afford to pay him the money which he currently earns. Now, he said in the summer that the reason he couldn't leave was because he didn't want to drag Barcelona through the courts because of everything that Barcelona means to him and what the club have given him. I just can't see a situation where Messi would give up his salary Already it's 70% reduced until the end of the season and hence the clause that allows him to get out in January. I just can't see um, that sort of steely determination to earn and to um, fully exploit his worth suddenly evaporating to say, I want to be loyal to Barcelona. You're right to identify that they've uh, exploited his supreme talent and popularity and they made you know they made a a strong argument an argument that he is not the only player and the only agent to make which is that in modern football an increasing amount of a, a player of a club's revenue comes from their star players so cristiano ronaldo at real madrid used that argument said look look at my social media profile it's much bigger than you as a club 
Um, therefore, I want a bigger chunk of your revenue. I deserve that. And if you're not prepared to give me it, I will move elsewhere to a club that values uh, my talent appropriately. And players' salaries have grown exponentially as individual players have become more important in football and in the following of football as the game has, has become even more popular globally. You have supporters who are more interested in following Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or you know, Marcus Rashford now would be someone developing that way and Sufati is being set up on that path um, than they are in individual clubs and they transfer with the players when the players move from uh, England to Spain to Italy. So the Messi's have taken advantage of an evolution in football and, and, a, and have been partly responsible for that evolution in football. But but you're right to say that the history is always to exploit, to get more money, to get better rewards for the player. And before the whole discussion with Manchester City or the whole latest discussion with Manchester City happened um, in the last summer window, in inverted commas, the Messi's were involved in, a, in salary discussions with Barcelona and were asking for a substantial raise on the money he already has, which is, as you say, already the richest contract in world football. So while there is an element here of Messi being a home bird and his family liking Barcelona, he, he talked about his children um, crying at the idea that he would leave when he explained to them that his decision had been to to leave Barcelona in the in the, the last window, and and I think that is a factor, is a definite factor in his thinking. Is what if I change my family's life, will I enjoy where I live? Um, will I be able to perform on the football field? Uh, there has not been any point where. The, the fundamental decision about where he plays has been disconnected from who offers the most money um, and, a, and, a, and a significant enough pay rise to keep him at Barcelona in the past. Now he has a situation where you have Abu Dhabi and Qatar saying, how much will it take to get you to finish your career in Europe with us instead? And Barcelona struggling for cash badly. Indeed. And uh, those of you who are regular listeners, and we know there are thousands of you, um, will not um, be forgetful of our coining the phrase scaredy cat Griezmann. And uh, it just remains to be seen whether or not we've got scaredy cat Leo Messi as well, because uh, he doesn't want to leave uh, Barcelona. However, away from Spain, uh, this week, this midweek saw um, one-third of the Premier League season's fixtures almost completed for most clubs and therefore a better um, perspective of where everyone sits in the table and indeed what their prospects are going forward. Uh, still only, I think, seven points separate the top ten in the league and that means that it's more difficult than usual to uh, pick out a winner with regards to who's going to take the title at the end of the season. It was an interesting uh, set of fixtures, an interesting set of fixtures coming up this weekend as well, Duncan. Um, Spurs-Liverpool, I think we both agree, uh, was the most significant fixture so far given that it was uh, first against second. Liverpool prevailed, albeit in the final minute, with a fantastic header from Roberto Firmino um, to go three points clear at the top uh, and overtake Spurs at uh, the point of the table uh, and also um, provoke some interesting comments from both managers, it has to be said, on who were the best team and who deserved to win or um, indeed the decisions of the referee as well. Yeah, eight, eight point gap in between Wolves, eight, Manchester sorry, yeah. City and, and Liverpool, so it is very compressed. Um, we're not having a team running away with it as we've had in, in recent seasons. Um, and less predictable than, than we've seen for a long time, which makes for a good title race. 
I think it would have been more interesting for the title race if Tottenham had stayed on top, uh, particularly if they'd won that match because Liverpool do look the stronger uh, team and they now have that advantage um, uh, and the mental belief that coming through that game will give them I, I think it is very important I think you know mentality can be over talked about in football but this is a team that's that's suffered very significant injuries to key players this season and has come through that getting to you know the, the, the third way through uh, the season mark on top um, maintaining its its incredible home record uh, and finding ways to win games um, yeah the debate at the end of the game and, and Mourinho's decision to tell Klopp um, immediately post-match that his team was the better the better uh, team on the day just I think highlights the difference in mentality of the two managers I think um there's obviously an element with Mourinho in that post-match press conference or uh, interview with television where he's trying to um, create a headline that will deflect away from the fact that they lost the game and have lost their position at, at the top of the table. Um, and saying that his team played the better game is obviously something that's going to c- capture people's attention. Uh, also, his comment about Klopp um, and his behaviour on the touchline and and how he gets away with things that uh, Mourinho would never get away with like um, he talked about him grabbing the, the fourth official's board um, from his hands at one point during the match. I think that struck a chord with a lot of supporters of everyone but Liverpool who watch Klopp behave on the touchline and, and harangue officials and, uh, and wonder why he uh, rarely is disciplined by them especially in an era where we have the ability to give managers yellow cards but I think there was also an element of Mourinho actually believing what he said Um, he set his team up in a way that he felt could get a result at Liverpool it was not pretty in the first half they didn't look good it didn't look like it was working in the first half they looked like they were going to be overrun um, Liverpool had so much ball around the edge of the area but Liverpool didn't actually create good chances um, from that possession the The goal came from a deflected shot and you can say well you are likely to get deflected shots if you allow the opponent so much ball around the edge of your box but Tottenham quickly equalised um, in the way Mourinho had set them up to equalise the second half um, they were clearly the more effective team for a good chunk of that second half. They had clear-cut opportunities to to go ahead in the game. So from his perspective, they were the better team because they were the more efficient team because they set themselves up in a way where on average they should win the match if they finish efficiently. And the statistics actually bear that argument out. Although Liverpool had over 70% possession, although they had significantly more shots than Tottenham, if you go to the, the big chances statistic that Opta uses to, to highlight the, the better opportunities, the, go, the, the, the scoring opportunities that should be put away, Tottenham had four of those to Liverpool zero. So his strategy worked from the perspective of creating the chances that on average should be put away uh, to win a game. It didn't work. He didn't get the points. Um, and ultimately, that's always the, the most important arbiter in the football match. Um, there was, I think, great credit to be given to Jordan Henderson in the way he helped manufacture uh, Firmino's winner at the end of the match with a very um, clever, shielded um, barge in the back of Eric Dyer which took took Eric Dyer out of that uh, the ability to combat that cross ball and created space for Firmino and i think that that's kind of a mark of of this liverpool team and that they they're able to do those streetwise things at the right moments um to get them wins when the other elements of their their quality um and more obvious elements of their quality don't do it but I think it was a fascinating game of football um, and you know a marker of the of the very different styles that can be played 
um, and a marker of how very small margins in an individual game can potentially change the 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 pattern of the season um, because you went from a, a, a situation where Tottenham could have been potentially being three points ahead to going to three points behind. If you were betting on it, you'd expect over the course of the season the stronger Liverpool team to to retain that advantage. Seems like Liverpool captain has learned well from the Real Madrid captain, Duncan, <laughs> in terms of making those interventions. Um, one thing that I found very interesting about the fixtures, and of course um, on Thursday night it was um, Sheffield United versus Manchester United. Uh, we Obviously we referred to it um, earlier in the pod, but um, watching Manchester United is like watching Spurs these days in terms of that counter-attack. Uh, and defending uh, block, uh, and it was very sort of obvious to me that you know, despite all of the kind of mythical stuff about United are the greatest team and the attack and they, you know, they play beautiful football. In actual fact, what Solskjaer's employed is effectively the same tactics as Mourinho's employed at, at Tottenham. El- elements of it, um, look. <sighs> Manchester United have a fantastically fast um, attack now and they have, particularly when they pair Pogba and Bruno Fernandes in the midfield, also if they put Donny van de Beek in there, they have two and three players who can, with one pass, set those players in, in behind the line. And if you play the kind of line that Sheffield United did, which was relatively high against those forwards, odds are they will score a goal or certainly create good chances in the game. Um, I think the difference between Manchester United and Tottenham at present is that the defence of, of Manchester United is not as secure as Tottenham's. Um, they don't work as well as a unit. Uh, you have the obvious issues with with Maguire um, positionally and a lack of pace, um, which can see them get caught out and they are very poor still at defending set pieces. They're con- still conceding a lot of goals from lateral free kicks and, and corner kicks. So while the most effective system that Solskjaer uses is when other teams come on to him, same way as the most effective system that Mourinho uses is when other teams come on to him, I think Tottenham are in- implementing it more effectively um, because they are better at, at defending um, not sure if they're better at attacking. I think they, Son and Kane are usually more efficient than Manchester United's forwards. I don't think Tottenham have the same degree of creativity in midfield. Endombele, uh, I think, is on a level, but the, they don't have two or sometimes three players who are able to create in that way. Um, and then, of course, there's the other difference, and, and you, you get quite a lot of people saying, why don't you criticise Mourinho for playing in that fashion when you criticise um, Solskjaer for playing in that fashion? Well, the difference is Mourinho doesn't make any pretense about um, wanting to play expansive um, football, wanting to play in, obviously it wouldn't be the United way, but that you could you could easily talk about how he wants to maintain the Tottenham tradition of, of playing attacking football. What he emphasises the is the importance of winning games and focuses on the importance of winning games, whereas Solskjaer has repeatedly talked about how he wants to play the right kind of football, how how we just go back to the Leipzig game before the game saying there's no point coming to this match to hold on for a nil-nil and defend. It's not in Manchester United's genes to play that way. Um, so makes the the the, the popular the populist statement in the press conference goes into the game, puts five men um, in his defensive line and two holding midfielders, exactly the opposite of what he said he would do. So there's a, you have to say there is a hypocrisy to some of what Solskjaer says when he's talking about the way he intends to play and the way Manchester United should play. Therefore, you can criticise the the hypocrisy of Solskjaer um, and you can criticise Mourinho's way of playing if you don't think that works. And um, obviously there's a question mark over whether it will work across the course of a season for Tottenham. But I don't think you can criticise him for doing something he said he wouldn't do. 
So the big question is, Duncan, one third of the season gone. Um, we're not expecting necessarily to be able to name the winner of the Premier League 2021. But in your judgment, who do you think of is going to make the biggest impression? Or indeed, actually, if you want to name the winner, then please do. At the moment, you would have to say that Liverpool look like being the winners. Um, they have that early advantage. They've gone through what should have been the most testing period for them, losing key players in, in defence. They've found a way to to get through that. They have Fabinho playing exceptionally well at centre-back, which I think has, has helped them massively. But they've they you know they have to have the belief because of what they've done in the last couple of seasons and and one of the things that Tottenham have to do is and and part of the whole idea of bringing Mourinho into the club was to add that self belief of we're good enough to actually win it and that's a difficult process at any club um you, you see Pep Guardiola struggling with it at Manchester City in terms of the Champions League there's a mental block there you saw it with Chelsea uh, in the past, the, the importance of, of getting, when you have a very good squad, of getting them to believe that they are the best squad in the league and are going to win it. Um, it's very open. It can change. Um, if Liverpool were to get injuries to Fabinho, for example, and, and have three of their now effectively first choice centre backs out, then that can cause some problems. It can switch off results. But look at the table now uh, and say who do you think are the most likely winners? I don't think you can say anyone else but Liverpool at present. Maybe you think otherwise, Ian. Um, I was actually thinking that at this time last year, as our listeners all know, we did trademark as Liverpool's title to lose. Um, and now I'm going to change that to is Duncan Castle's title to lose. Because <laughs> you heard it here first. Duncan Castle's predicted Liverpool win. Uh, you wait 30, 30 years for a title and what happens? Two come along at once. Uh, so let's see if that's the case at the end of the season. I'm sure all of you will have a view on that and rightly so. And you know that we do enjoy uh, your interaction and engagement so please let us know what you think it's the end of the week podcast on the transfer window so that means one thing and one thing only and that is awarding the donkey uh, award for this week and this uh, time we're going to um, dedicate this to the Boris Johnson award for no negotiations just do it my way um, so the uh, nominations are, let me just tear open, of course, the golden envelope as a, as a tradition. Oh, there we go. Now, Duncan, we have uh, for the Boris Johnson No Negotiations Do It My Way Award, uh, we have Jurgen Klopp for his behaviour on Wednesday night in that win over Spurs. Uh, we have Sir Alex Ferguson. Funnily enough, uh, blasphemy passed for someone who basically in every game did not accept anything that didn't go his way uh, and made it clear and very public uh, what he felt about that. And the third one, and my personal favourite, as many of you will know, is Jack Grealish, um, who doesn't accept anyone even coming anywhere near him, indeed within <laughs> five metres, without falling over and claiming a foul and of course takes great pleasure and pride in being the player who has the record of being the most fouls won I'm not sure about that phrase Duncan most fouls won, do you win fouls? I think Jack Grealish probably does but anyway uh, I leave it up to you to award this week's donkey um, Much as I'm tempted by your latest um, foul on, on Jack Grealish and, and you do have a point about him <laughs> His ability to uh, generate fouls out of, of nowhere. Listen, if I was playing against Jack, Jack Grealish, I'd be taking him out from the knees. <laughs> you wouldn't get near his knees. He'd jump out of the way before his, the <laughs> so chance fall to over. reach. As soon as, as, soon as like a metre away, he'd fall over. Which is a, you know, a sign of intelligence and a creative player if he manages to avoid the foul and gain the foul from the from the referee. True. Um, Very good. Uh, 
Jurgen Klopp obviously has strong candidacy in this, but I think he's actually maybe it's an element of his success as Liverpool manager as he's he's managing to emulate what Ferguson did during that long period at, at Manchester United, especially in that he has uh, combined his charisma and and popularity with or impact on a lot of individuals in football with an ability to uh, give them a, a hugely hard time and press on them and complain about everything and be rarely punished for it. So um, you can gain an advantage from that, obviously. Uh, that's why managers do it. Ferguson did it. Klopp's doing it well. Um, I think Klopp has learned from the Grand Master, so we'll give this award to Ferguson as the uh, as the original man who refused to have it any other way but his own. I think that was well deserved, and given that uh, the podcast has only been going since uh, after Sir Alex Ferguson retired, it's only right that he deserves uh, to get the award. And we were sending that to him for his Christmas stocking for Lady Cathy to stick it in there and give him a surprise uh, on Christmas morning when he gets up and opens his prezzies. So that has been the Transfer Window podcast for this week. Um, If you liked what you heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. And of course, that means that uh, we can expand the community and everyone gets to hear more as well as engage with us. You can also subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Plus, turn on all notifications, please, and that way find out as soon as the new podcast is published. If you want to engage, and of course we know you do, and you know that we will engage in turn, please join the discussion with us on at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and individually. Duncan is on at Duncan Castles and I'm on at Garble SJ. We will see and hear and listen and we'll be broadcasting again next week. Until then, stay safe, be well and thanks for listening. 